Good morning. It's good to be with you, church. Always a pleasure to gather with you and worship with you, and one of the privileges and one of the benefits of getting to do that um, more frequently than not is uh, getting to move from just familiar faces that I think I've seen that person before to beginning to uh, know each other's names and enjoying worshiping with you, and um, so it's always a pleasure uh, to be here this morning. As uh, was mentioned, we'll be focusing in upon Matthew chapter 5 this morning. So if you don't already, would you go ahead and turn in God's word with me to Matthew chapter 5? It's my intention to uh, being here two weeks in a row to try and string two consecutive thoughts together um, and anchor ourselves in a portion of scripture that's um, somewhat contextually just tied together. So it's my attempt and my plan, Lord willing, that we'll be splitting essentially the Beatitudes up into two different Sundays and as was mentioned, probably a familiar portion of scripture um, to many of us, but one that I can't seem to long get away from and come back to just in devotion and meditation and good help for our souls. So with that in mind, with God's word before us, would you join with me in looking to him in prayer, asking for his help as we hear from his word. Our Heavenly Father, we're mindful this morning of your grace and your kindness to us in Christ, that we come to you this morning as beggars, as we come as those not deserving to be fed or to be nourished, to receive mercy or forgiveness, but we come in great boldness and faith only because you've revealed yourself to be a God who is gracious, a God who is merciful, that you've revealed yourself to us in Christ as our Heavenly Father and a Father who delights to bless his children, sustain them, and provide for them. And so this morning we come on the basis of your own promise to us and what you've revealed to us in your word, that you would be faithful to us yet again to be our good shepherd, to tend to us and care to us, to nourish us and equip us, sustain us, guard us and keep us. That, Father, where we need to be rebuked and reminded and corrected, where we need to be encouraged and and healed and, and assured, And Father, where we need to have the eyes of our faith strengthened and and clarified, Lord, you know. And so would you be faithful this morning by the ministry of your own spirit to reveal your heart towards us, to reveal Christ to us, to reveal more of what it means to be a Christian and the, the joy that is found in being welcomed into your kingdom. We pray that you would do this, that you might bring lasting fruit to our lives that you might continue to, the, to conform us to the image of your Son, that he might receive all of the glory, all of the praise, honor, and adoration, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, here in Matthew chapter 5, if you're familiar with the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, I would remind you of the context that precedes it. At this point in Matthew's account, Jesus, we're told, has been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And people are beginning to notice. So much so that it says in verse 24 of the previous chapter that his fame is spreading. And great crowds are beginning to follow him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Essentially north and south of Israel. Great crowds are now beginning to amass Jesus following him wherever he might be. And having with him this multitude of people as he moves throughout Israel in his ministry. Now, if you step back and think about it, this is a very precarious moment 
in time for any movement. Swelling momentum seen with these mass followers, but not necessarily clear on the exact mission. It's easy to gather a crowd, isn't it? It's easy to get a bunch of people in one place. It's easy to get followers for no apparent reason. But does that mass of people, does that group of people actually understand what is, what is happening and what this teacher is teaching? More specifically, do the disciples here that we're told of, do they actually know what it is they're a part of? Do they know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, specifically? Do they know what it means to be a part of this kingdom of God that Jesus is preaching about? No, of course not. Not to the full extent of what Christ intends. And so this is why Jesus, in essence, he calls a timeout. And as these crowds are gathering, he calls his disciples to himself and he begins to teach them. This is what any good leader does. This is what any good teacher does. Let's make sure we're clear about what I'm talking about. Let's be sure that we are on the same page when we're talking about the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom. And so what follows over the next three chapters is what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is there in this hill there in northern Galilee. And it has been rightly described essentially as the manifesto of the kingdom of God. It is, in essence, the description of what it means to belong to God's kingdom. It is, in essence, the definition of of the people of God, those who are members of the new covenant that belong to him. And so Jesus here, he patiently lays out the very, what you could say is the definition of a Christian. If you were to come away from Matthew 5 through 7, you would have a clear understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be a member of this kingdom. And as Jesus does that, as you move through the sermon, you see that he strikes down these Uh, various religious assumptions of what true righteousness is. And then he moves forward and speaks formative to to the formative practices of giving and praying and fasting and generosity and patient rest in the Heavenly Father. So above all, what Jesus paints here is this picture and that disciples are to be different. Disciples are to be different than the nominally religious and the secular. Disciples of Christ stand as distinct. And above all, the picture that Christ paints is that it's one of impossibility. If you approach the Sermon on the Mount, if you approach the Beatitudes as stepping stones to become a Christian, you will feel overwhelmingly burdened because that is Jesus' point. What he lays out in this sermon is the picture of impossibility, human impossibility. The righteous attainment that God demands is perfection. Now, how you would attempt to achieve perfection in a fallen state is beyond me. And that is exactly Jesus' point, aiming at the conclusion in which he gets to. Those that belong to the kingdom of God do so because of the work of God, not of man. That's why Luther was very clear in his writings here in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is saying nothing in the sermon about how we become Christians, but only about the work and the fruit that no one can do unless he already is a Christian in the state of grace. So keep that in mind as we work through these Beatitudes, that this is more or less 
a picture of what it means to be a Christian. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're a skeptic or you're asking questions or you've been invited by a friend or a coworker and you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian, this is a perfect portion of Scripture for you to examine because Jesus puts it up on the wall and says, this is it. This is what it means to be a follower of me. This is how we're going to see one becomes a follower. But with any good sermon, there must be an intro, a good introduction, something that sets the stage, something that grabs the attention, draws you in to hear more. And this is precisely what we have here and what we're calling the Beatitudes, verses 2 through 12. In these eight statements, Jesus unpacks the distinctive character of a Christian. Now, keep in mind, these are not eight separate types of people, like this is some sort of Myers-Briggs profile, like I'm more, of a, I'm more of a meek person, or I'm more of a hungering and thirsting for righteousness kind of person. This, this is a totality of what Jesus is describing. It's, it's the same person. It's the same group who, by virtue of their new nature, they are meek. They are merciful. They are poor in spirit. They are pure in heart, thirsting after righteousness, living as peacemakers in the midst of a hostile world. So these Beatitudes paint for us a picture of what the work of God in the soul of man actually looks like. This is the outworking of what Paul would describe as being conformed to the image of Christ. So it's no surprise then that in the introduction to this Sermon on the Mount, the description of a Christian, there are two themes that rise up. Two themes that I think you could equally divide these Beatitudes into. Two groups of four. These themes of humility and holiness. And there's many ways that you could divide these two, uh, these, these eight Beatitudes up. But I want to look at them from this idea of humility first which leads to a practical holiness. And if that's what it means to be a disciple and how we come to know Christ and the fruit of the work, what God does in somebody, I would say humility and holiness are two pretty dominant themes in the life of the Christian and the work of God. Thomas Brooks says, The most holy men are always the most humble men. Souls that are the most highly esteemed and valued by God do set the least and lowest esteem upon themselves. The most holy are always the most humble. So keeping all of that in mind, let's give attention and give thought to these first couple of Beatitudes, beginning there in verse 3, where Jesus speaks of those that are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we read through the Beatitudes, it will be helpful to keep a certain amount of Old Testament illumination upon what Jesus is saying here, upon the text to provide the background that we would need to help us interpret kind of the thrust or the goal of what Jesus is getting at here. And so within our Old Testament, when we read of the poor, we read of somebody who is certainly in literal material need. There's no surprise there. But woven together with that in the Psalms and in in other places, poverty is not just material poverty. When the psalmist speaks of himself being a poor man, he's not just looking at his wallet. 
there's something holistic about my need. Uh, This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 34. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him and delivered him from all of his troubles. When you hear poverty, don't just think dollar signs. Think dependence. I don't have what I need. I am dependent upon someone outside of myself to find what I do need. Think of it more in that terms of weakness and dependence. This is most certainly what Jesus is getting at here. Because the poor man in the Old Testament is the one who's both afflicted and unable to help himself. And he's looking to God for that help. Therefore, to be poor in spirit, as Jesus mentions here, is to acknowledge our overall need and more specifically our spiritual need. I think it's been rightly said that you could classify this as just spiritual bankruptcy. I'm not just a little bit short this week. I am in over my head. I have nothing. There's no way that I can dig out. There is such great debt attributed to my person that I am impoverished. Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you if you are in such a state that you recognize the overwhelming need and dependent condition that you are in. Is this not what the scriptures teach? We are sinners. We're rebels. We're traitors. We've turned our backs on God, and therefore we're under this righteous wrath of God. We deserve nothing but God's own judgment, but by God's grace, we come to see we have nothing to offer. We have absolutely nothing to bargain with, thinking like, okay, God, if if I just do this, then maybe you could help me out here. When we truly understand our condition, we know we have no chips to bargain with. We have no lever to somehow help us. We are absolutely impoverished, poor in spirit. And so Jesus says, it's that kind of person right there. It's that person who knows that that is true of themselves, that they actually are the one to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. That's who's in my kingdom. Spiritual paupers. Absolute beggars, impoverished, debtors. The Christian is one who recognizes that they do not belong anywhere except right next to the tax collector in Jesus' parable who bowed his head, beat his chest, and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Christian places himself right there and says, that's me. That's what Jesus is getting at. And what Jesus is saying here is that to these and to these alone belong the kingdom of heaven. So right here at the introduction of this sermon, Jesus completely blasts all idea of of human reasoning and any sort of nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God. If you think my kingdom is going to elevate you or be for those who want to elevate themselves or move this country forward in the direction that you think it should be moving forward, let me just tell you right now, the only people who belong in my kingdom are the spiritually beggars, the poor in spirit. And we find this to be true as we move through the gospels, don't we? Who is it that is shown to enter the kingdom of of heaven? Not the Pharisees who thought that they were rich towards God, needing nothing. 
not the zealots who thought that they could bring about the kingdom of God by their own bloody and violent actions. The kingdom of, of heaven is it's given to tax collectors, to prostitutes, to the castaways of human society and those who know that they're so impoverished that they could offer Jesus nothing, that they could obtain nothing by their own standing and all they could do was cry out for mercy. And Jesus says, I hear, I listen. So this pattern of scripture remains true for us today. A Christian is someone who feels and knows their spiritual impoverishment. It is normative for you, if you are a follower of Christ, to feel this great sense of debt. To feel, I am insufficient. To be aware of your weakness. To be aware of your great need. Again, I like how Brooks, Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, puts it as he talks about coming to God on the credit of Christ. Listen to how he frames this. The humble soul in all religious duties and services trades with God upon the credit of Christ. Lord, says the humble soul, I need power against such and such sins. Give it to me in the credit of Christ's blood. I need strength to such and such services. Give it to me on the credit of Christ's word. I need such and such mercies for the cheering, refreshing, quickening, and strengthening of me. Give them into my bosom upon the credit of Christ's intercession. As a poor man lives and deals upon the credits of others, so does a humble soul live and deal with God for the strengthening of every grace and for the supply of every mercy upon the credit of the Lord Jesus. We come to God on the basis of the credit of Christ. That is what it means to be impoverished. That is to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. But Jesus goes on, he says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I believe you could rightly translate this, happy are the sad. One of the many paradoxes in our Bible. It's essentially what Jesus is saying, isn't it? If this is true, what kind of sorrow could it possibly be that actually brings joy? What sort of thing actually works like that? That through mourning comes, as Jesus said, comfort. That through true sorrow, you find comfort. Well, keep in mind the context of each beatitude is that it, in a sense, builds upon what precedes it. You can think of it as a path, in a sense, where Jesus is walking along and, and pointing out things in, in consecutive order. The application is best understood. And so when we understand poverty of spirit, it only makes sense that that same person then would also know something of mourning. If they truly understand the impoverishment which, with, which they have before God. It's one thing to admit your spiritual poverty. It's another thing to grieve and actually mourn this condition. That for the Christian life, according to Jesus, is not always joy and laughter. Now we know that when a certain degree of affliction or trial hits our lives, when we grieve the death of a loved one. But there is also a poverty, a mourning that comes when we just think about our own condition. When we think about our own sinfulness, 
when we think about the reality of who we are and what Christ has to have done, had to have done to redeem us. And I think this is especially important for us as Americans in our present-day evangelical American church where we don't always know what to do with mourning. We don't have many songs of lament in our playlist. But if you read the Psalms, there's quite a few. That when we move through together and begin to confess sin, we most often quickly just want to run right to the assurance of pardon. But there's something good, a good discipline of actually sitting in that fact and saying, no, I'm mourning this. Jesus wept over the sins of others, over the bitter grief and judgment and death over this prideful city of Jerusalem that rejected him. Paul wept as he wrote about the false teachers that harassed God's church in his day, as he called them in Philippians, the very enemies of the cross of Christ. The psalmist wept, saying that rivers of water ran down his face because men do not keep God's law. We too should weep. Not only over the evil that we see in this world and the sin that we see in others' lives, but most certainly for the sin in our own life as well. See, there is a danger of a lopsided Christianity that speaks only of grace and never of sin. If we speak only of grace, we don't have grace. We don't understand the great wonder of grace. And perhaps there's so little sorrow among us because we know so little of the sinfulness of sin and the true curse of remaining sin within our hearts. We might be better off if we experience more of the godly grief that the 18th century uh, missionary to the American Indians, David Brainerd, felt. In his journal on October 18, 1740, he penned these words, In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my own exceeding sinfulness and vileness. How many times do we turn to our devotional help or our scriptures in the morning and just meditate on the fact and become overwhelmed with the fact that, oh, Lord, and mourn our true condition. See, the Christian mourns not only the consequences of sin in their own life. I think that is somewhat easy, isn't it? When you hit your thumb with the hammer. It's very easy to cry out because of the consequence of this. This is painful. But I think it's something else when we move from just the, the sadness over the consequences to us to when we begin to sense the grievous nature of what sin does to our God. The mourning, the offense of sin, more than just my own personal skin related to it. I think this is something of what Jesus and Paul would be getting out when he would speak of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Here's the inescapable truth of Scripture. Only those who mourn their own sinfulness will ever look and experience the comfort of Christ. We will know nothing or very little of the comfort that Christ brings in his prophetic office of prophet, priest, and king. We will know so little of that if we don't come to him mourning. The comfort that Christ brings is only held out to those who grieve. And this is Jesus' point. 
Those who mourn over their spiritual impoverishment are those that are supremely blessed by the very comfort of God. Because we are getting a bit of ahead of ourselves here in this unpacking of the gospel and, and what it says, doesn't it? It says that not only are we sinners, but that Christ is a great Savior. And the tremendous comfort that comes from that of knowing that my sin, this offense against a holy God, is pardoned in Christ. And not just pardoned, but I am welcomed, adopted as a son. All of that comfort that comes in the promise of the gospel only comes through the pathway of mourning, of truly knowing the sinfulness of my sin. So it would make sense then, wouldn't it, because of the centrality of this mourning and comfort, ought it show up often and in critical moments in our lives? Shouldn't this be something that's a part of our vocabulary? We think about our evangelism and, and what do we actually praying and asking that, that would be accomplished as, as we share the gospel with our friends and coworkers. Well, that at some point along this line, that they would have some sense of conviction of sin. That they would mourn over their condition, that they would see their true need for Christ, that they would know the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings so that they would know the comfort. Wouldn't it show up often in our parenting as we seek to instruct our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord? Calling out not just don't do that because that's bad behavior. But pointing out the fact that that behavior is a reflection of the sin within our own hearts. That sin is grievous. Wouldn't it show up in the care for our own souls and our prayers for others as we're desirous for this mourning over sin that would produce this fleeing towards Christ and his comfort? Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Jesus goes on here. He says in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think this quality of meekness is one that's lost upon us as Americans. Not only is it misunderstood that we just scratch our heads and say, what's the advantage of meekness? But I think it's actually considered to be a character fault in the eyes of many. Oh, meekness? You'll get run over if you're meek. Nice guys finish last. Keep in mind the particular form of meekness which Christ requires of his followers. Again, must have something to do with the sequence of what he said so far. The Greek word here means gentle. It means humble. It means considerate or courteous. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is particularly helpful in this point as he emphasizes that this meekness or gentle spirit, it's brought about when we have a true estimate of ourselves. Uh, when we see ourselves as we really are. Some of the most awkward moments in life are when you think you are something that you are not, isn't it? Whether it's on the athletic field, or whether it's your entrance exam, or whether it's the way you're just going to crush it this week, and then you come to find out you are pathetically not even close to what you thought. Your estimate of yourself was here. Meekness is having a true estimate of yourself. It's seeing yourself as you really are. And when you see yourself as you really are, how can you be anything but meek? When we see our impoverished condition, when we mourn over our sin, that sort of person has a true estimation of who they really are. Lloyd-Jones points out that it's relatively easy to be honest with ourselves before God. It's pretty easy to say, Father, I'm a sinner, 
and I've sinned in this way. But we bristle a little bit when others come to us and say, hey, that's a sin. You've sinned against me in this way. Well, you got to understand the circumstances. Meekness, true meekness, is ready to receive the, the true estimation of ourselves. Not only what we think we are, but what the Word of God says we are. But Jones says, how much more difficult is it to allow other people to say things like that about me? I instinctively resent it. We all prefer to condemn ourselves rather than allow someone else to condemn us. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in the attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think well of, of, well of him as they do and treat him as well as they do. So meekness here is essentially the byproduct of a biblical view of oneself. When you agree with God about who he says you are and who he says he is, meekness will inevitably be the byproduct. When I hear what the scriptures say of me and my sinful state, when I hear what the scriptures proclaim of what Christ has done in his great mercy, that person can be nothing but meek. But don't overlook this. Don't overlook what Jesus adds about these meek people. <laughs> if meekness wasn't hard enough to believe, he says that these are actually the ones who inherit the earth. Isn't that completely contrary to what we assume and what the world teaches? Any red-blooded American would expect the exact opposite. You would think that the meek get nowhere on this earth but mowed over and stepped upon and trampled upon by everyone else. After all, isn't it that bold entrepreneurial spirit, that gregarious type A, tough-nosed person that's going to make their mark on the world? Jesus says actually the ones who are going to inherit this earth are the meek. Well, how does that work? I think this language of meekness is helpfully unpacked for us among other places, but in Psalm 37, and specifically this idea of inheriting, if you want to turn over, it's Psalm 37, the first couple of verses there. How do the meek inherit the earth? Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. 
The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. And then look over at verse 32. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he's brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. Here's the promise. In the end, Jesus is the one who will right every wrong, who will expose every lie, and he will judge every person with perfect righteousness. And the only ones who escape unscathed are the ones who've actually seen themselves of deserving of this very judgment and have fled to Christ as a place of refuge. You see, the meek belong to Jesus. And in the end, the meek went out because Jesus wins. The meek inherit the earth because Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom on the earth. So Christ says, blessed are these people. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit. And then verse 6, we'll, we'll end with this for this morning. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I wonder in your reading of God's word, if you've ever noticed how often sensory language is used within scripture to help communicate spiritual principles. You know what I mean by that? Uh, hear, taste and see, look. All, all, all the sensory language that presses upon us to communicate some truth about God or his purposes. Hunger and thirst are certainly desires that we're all familiar with, and the closer we get to 12 o'clock, the more familiar we will get to them. <laughs> Hunger and thirst dictate so much of our schedule, doesn't it? How do you organize your day around what you're going to eat and drink, mostly, or what you're going to feed to somebody else? Hunger and thirst dictate so much of our budget. What are we going to spend? Where are we going to spend it at? It's so much of our earthly concern. And so too, the Christian is one who's dictated by a hunger and a thirst. And this hunger and this thirst is an all-consuming ache for righteousness. In the Bible, righteousness has at least two aspects. I think you could classify them as legal righteousness and moral righteousness. Legal righteousness, you could, you could classify as justification. In that sense, the legal declaration or the pronouncement of, of innocence, to be free from all guilt, to be completely 100% innocent, declared righteous. And we love this doctrine. Those of us who have trusted in Christ and who know something of the gospel, that we love this sort of righteousness because we know it doesn't come through my own efforts, but it, it's imputed to me. It's the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith that God grants to all those who would repent of their sin and turn to Him. God declares that person justified. There is a legal righteousness that is pronounced upon that person as an heir of God. 
There is most certainly that sense of righteousness in the Bible. But there's another angle or, or another kind of, if you were looking at the prism, how righteousness is, is refracted and we understand the outworking of true righteousness, moral righteousness. Moral righteousness is the righteousness of character and daily conduct that reflects this God. God is righteous. He imputes Christ righteous to us, giving us a new standing, giving us a new nature. And the outworking of that new nature produces the fruits of righteousness. So there is, in that sense, a moral righteousness that belongs to the children of God. Not perfect, this side of glory, but as we are being conformed to the image of His Son, becoming more and more evident. So, the nature that we are given produces this increasingly righteous living. So the righteousness that we think of in the Bible should be thought of as a holistic righteousness. It flows from God as it has its source in Him. It's imputed to us by faith, transforming us, and then it overflows into our daily living that we would expect. And we long for righteousness in our speech and our responses to one another as we work in our spheres of vocation, as we're students, that this righteousness flows out into the streets, as it were, as we are the people of God. So this means then that the Christian is not just myopically fixated upon their own personal righteousness. They love justification by faith and say, neighbor, forget about you. There's an imbalance there. the same time equally true a christian is not one who is so zealously fixated upon campaigning for justice out there or having complete indifference to the righteousness that god imputes to us in christ that's what i mean by this holistic sense it's an all-consuming desire that touches every fabric of the life for the christian This means that the Christian is someone who aches. They have hunger pains. They are parched with with thirst for the righteousness that Christ himself brings. I think it's been rightly said, it's not enough to mourn over past sin. We must hunger for future righteousness. I don't just want to be told that I'm forgiven. I want to be changed. And lo and behold, that's what the, the gospel proclaims. This means that a Christian then, if we boil all this down, what we're essentially saying, a Christian is marked out by a holy discontentment. There is a sense in which I am satisfied, but there is a sense in which I still hunger. I still thirst. There is this paradigm, this tension of the already not yet that runs throughout the scripture, doesn't it? Christ has proclaimed that you are justified, but you're not yet glorified. My kingdom is here, but yet evil and injustice still seems to be present. There is this already not yet tension, and the Christian lives in that dynamic of saying, I, I've, I've mourned over my sin, I've understood the comfort that comes in Christ's mercy, I'm hungering and thirsting, I know something of satisfaction, but I don't know it fully yet. The Christian is somebody who quietly rests in the promise of the gospel, which declares that for 
our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. They rest in that. They put their head down on their pillow and say, I can go to sleep to that. I can put the cares of today to bed and trust in the righteousness of Christ that is mine. And yet, at the same time, they long to experience more of this transformative effect. They long for more of this righteousness that would transform their own desires, their own habits, their own passions. It would transform their own family. They, they, they say, yes, and Lord. The Christian reads of the kingdom of God wherein righteousness dwells and expectantly hopes for the day when all that is true and good and beautiful will be the only thing that remains. And yet they listen to the complaints of their friends. They watch the suffering of their own children. They read of refugees and shootings and slavery and all manner of evil. And they prayerfully wait and work for true righteousness to take place. See, in our lives, spiritual hunger will never fully be satisfied, nor our thirst completely quenched this side of glory. Yet we taste a portion of this coming satisfaction, but it's temporary and it's partial. That's why Jesus would go on to pray. When you pray, pray in this manner, and he would say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's an expression, an outworking of this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We want that here. Lord, bring it. Lord, do that. So like all, all qualities that are included in these Beatitudes, hungering and thirsting, they are these perpetual characteristics of disciples of Jesus, just as poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, you never really get away from them, do you, as a child of God? So too hungering and thirsting. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. But right now, this morning, this Lord's Day, we are presently aliens. We're foreigners. We are living in a land that does not honor God or know God. The presence and power of sin, it remains Oppression and attack of Satan is constant. And therefore, we remain hungry. We remain thirsty. The tension that the Christian lives in is made bearable by this. It's made bearable by the promise of God. Not only his promise to keep us and to sustain us throughout this life, but his promise that he's one day going to return. That is our hope and that's our expectation. God has promised a day of judgment. A day in which goodness and righteousness will triumph and wickedness and evil will be overthrown. And in this new heaven and in this new earth, the kingdom of God will be a kingdom of righteousness without end. We have never known that. But that is what awaits us as God's people. And is this not the very crux of the gospel? To whom does this kingdom belong? Not to the spiritually rich. This is Jesus' point. Not to the spiritually rich who are convinced of their self-sufficiency, but only the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. Not to those who say, eat, drink, and be merry, but those who have rightfully mourned over their own sin and felt some of its effects. 
It comes to those who are not strong, who are not self-dependent, but it comes to the meek. It comes to the gentle spirits who have the right view of themselves in light of, of God's own standard. It comes not to the full, not to the satisfied who say, what else could I possibly need? But it comes to those who are so aware of their need that they say, I actually ache. I am hungry for righteousness. I thirst for this righteousness, for Christ and all that he brings. So in the introduction of this beatitude, it would be helpful and very wise if we would pause and just simply ask ourselves, do we know anything of this? Do we know anything of what Christ is describing here? Is he beginning to unpack what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom, a member of his household, a follower of him? Is your definition of Christianity shaped by your own assumptions? Maybe your own experiences? Or is it shaped ultimately by the word of God and the mind of God that's given to us in his own word? So, let us search out and examine ourselves. Do I know anything of this poverty? Do I know anything of mourning over my sin? Do I know anything of being made gentle, remaining hungry? If we would be holy, we must be humble. And there is nowhere that that is more explicit than when we look to the cross. Because what the cross proclaims to us is God's resolution, God's definitive plan to make a people for himself that abide in his presence, that are holy, and to make a people for himself out of unholy people. He reaches down in and grabs the wicked. And he says, these will be my people, and I will make them holy by my own cross, which proclaims to them that they are wicked, that they are holy, unholy, that they are rebels, that they've turned their back on me. But if they would but look to my son, they would understand that justice is satisfied. Righteousness is here. Mercy is proclaimed at this cross. That is a humbling thing to hear. That is a more humbling thing to receive that upon yourself and say that is exactly who I am. But it is the very means by which God says, these people shall be made holy. Holiness comes by humility. And the cross testifies that to us daily. At the cross, the weight of our sin is on full display as God's own son bears its punishment for his people upon his own shoulders. And yet the mercy of God, the wonder of God's mercy is on full display. Whosoever, repent and believe. So truly we are but beggars. And yet God is a wonderfully benevolent Father. And that is what we hear repeated throughout the Scriptures and what, of course, in Christ's good, gracious wisdom begins with here in this Sermon on the Mount. Being mindful of all of these things, let's look to our Heavenly Father this morning. Father, we come before you as but beggars, as but beggars who are in so much need, more need than we even recognize. When we awoke this morning by your mercy, even if we had some sense of our great need for your grace and your mercy upon our lives, Lord, it's just scratching the surface of the totality of, of what we truly need to be brought into your presence. But we rejoice this morning of the promise of the gospel in which you proclaim to us through your Son, 
the word become flesh. Thank you that you have promised to make a people for yourself and that you do so by your own working, not by any working within our own selves or any estimation of righteousness that we could somehow hope to obtain, but that you do it through your son on our behalf. Help us, Father, to rest in that, that we might see ourselves clearly, that we might have a true estimation of ourselves as we really are, not only in our sinful need, but, Father, what is given to us in our union with Christ. Cause us to become more and more overwhelmed and in awe of what we have as becoming sons of God. Help us to stand in awe of the wonderful plan which you've chosen in eternity past to make a people for yourself and your faithfulness to carry it out and your ability to bring it about when your kingdom returns. Lord, make us thirsty. Keep us hungry for more of this righteousness that is ours in Christ and that shall be brought to bear upon this earth. Help us to be those who are not so consumed with all that grabs for our attention at the moment, but those who have an eye towards heaven longing for your return. Do this, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.